from HerbMentor.com. This is HerbMentor Radio. You are listening to HerbMentor Radio on HerbMentor.com. I'm John Gallagher. My guest today is Roy Upton. Roy has been practicing professionally as an herbalist since 1981. Trained as an Ayurvedic, Chinese, and Western herbalist, he is founder and executive director of the American Herbal Pharmacopoeia. A past president of the American Herbalist Guild, serves on the Committee of Revision for the U.S. Pharmacopoeia and the Botanical Expert Advisory Committee of groups like the American Botanical Council. Visiting faculty for many schools and a staff herbalist for planetary herbals. Roy is also a member of the Standards Committee of the American Herbal Products Association. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> the um, the American Herbal Pharmacopoeia is on the web at herbal-ahp.org. Roy, welcome. Oh, thank you, John. And Roy, you know, uh, is that the best place online for folks to check out your work? You know, after the interview, if they want to, if they want to read more about you, because you seem like you do a lot of stuff there. So. Yeah, we wear, I have to wear a lot of hats. I mean, many of us in the herb world do, but yes, that would be the best place to look at the work of the American Herbal Pharmacopoeia, which takes a great deal of my time. So yes, that's a good link. Now, uh, a lot of folks listening may not know what the herbal, uh, American Herbal Pharmacopoeia or what a pharmacopoeia is, so could you explain that? Sure. Um, basically, what a pharmacopoeia is is an um, organization that helps to establish standards of identity, purity, and quality for whatever product category you're addressing. So in this case, herbal products. Um, mm -hmm. It actually came about uh, through legislative efforts. Um, I don't know if you remember in the early 1990s when FDA was rattling the sabers, mm -hmm. uh, talking about taking herbs and vitamins off the market. And um, at that time, um, we got the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act passed, and that kept supplements on the market. And part of the conversation was, well, how do you guys know what you have? You know, how do you tell one green leaf from another green leaf? How do you tell mm. one bark from another bark? Mm. Uh, how do you tell the quality? Uh, what about microbial contamination, heavy metal contamination? What about side effects, contraindications? Uh, do you know what dosage you're supposed to be using? And all the people had the same questions. All the legislative people and regulatory people seemed to have the same questions. And what it arose to me was that we had no comprehensive source for that information in the United States. This is what a pharmacopoeia typically does, is mm -hmm. brings this information together. Unfortunately, our United States pharmacopoeia, which is the official document for drugs, official mm -hmm. standard-setting organization for drug products, they had left herbs behind in the 1950s, right? And everything got mm -hmm. replaced by chemical, synthetic medications. Um, and we had lost a lot of the knowledge about the standards of identity, the standards of quality, the standards of purity. When should we pick an herb? How should we dry it so that we don't fry all the constituents that give it its medicinal activity? How, what do we know and what do we don't know about this botanical? A lot of that stuff had been lost, really. Um, you know, and only in existence in counterculture, small counterculture groups who studied mm -hmm. herbal medicine. But it wasn't widely known and certainly wasn't um, compiled in a manner that regulators or um, legislators or industry would consider to be credible. You know, you could go to an herbalist in Santa Cruz and say, oh, what do I use echinacea for and how much should I take? Well, then you have, you have to trust that person. But it doesn't give any independent credibility to that body of information. So mm -hmm. what a pharmacopoeia does is what we do is we bring all this information together and then we have it reviewed by experts, medicinal plant experts all over the world. Um, that include herbalists, naturopathic physicians, pharmacists, medical doctors, pharmacologists, toxicologists, chemists, botanists. Mm -hmm. um, and at the end of the day, when we have developed one of these, what we call monographs, it represents the most comprehensive and complete body and critically reviewed body of information on that botanical that exists anywhere in the English language. And 
FDA uses them, NIH uses them, traditional herbalists use them, university researchers use them, the industry uses them to help establish their own internal quality control standards. So that's what that's the basis of what we do at the American Herbal Pharmacopeia. And, and does that somehow intersect then with the U.S. Pharmacopeia? Like, do, is this is this satisfying their needs? Like, you I'm know, not, like, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I'm just wondering, as far as legislatively, are, uh, is that a response to what had happened before, or is this like a preparation also to be ready for when something like comes up again, like a bill like that idea, right. or 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 does this somehow intersect to build to rebuild the herbal part of a U.S. Pharmacopeia? Are they just not interested? <laughs> No, it does. It does all of the above. Actually, initially, uh, USP wasn't doing any work on the herbal products. The year after we were formed, um, they brought the idea of getting back into botanicals into the USP, back to their um, membership, and it was a highly contentious issue for them. But at the end of the day, the gentleman who was the executive director of USP at the time, uh, Jerry Halper, and he's a pharmacist, um, he really convinced them that, hey, we need to be in this botanical sector because it's a growing sector. Mm-hmm. And if if, if USP doesn't do it, AHP or some other P is going to do it, so we better be here. So literally a year after we formed as an organization to do this work, um, they decided to get back into the botanical monograph world. Um, There's no real intersect, though I'm a member or was a member of the chapter of revision for Mm -hmm. um, uh, for USP. So we have worked close in some ways, but in other ways they tend to go off on their own and say, well, we have to create our own standard because we want our standard to be the standard throughout the entire world. We don't want somebody to say, I want to follow an AHP standard or a European pharmacopoeia standard. Um, But we do have collegiate um, collaborations with USP. What it really does, it goes to the second part of what, um, what you said. This helps to rebuild the foundation of what we should know about our herbal medicines. Mm -hmm. And it also is a foundational work for when something comes up. So, for example, recently we um, finalized the monograph on the herb skullcap. Okay. Anybody who knows herbs knows skullcap is a great nervine, good for mm-hmm. sleeping, good for nervous exhaustion, and it's extremely safe. Unfortunately, in the European market, skullcap, and in the American market, skullcap gets mixed up with another herb called germanda, and mm-hmm. germanda can cause liver toxicity. So you have these reports out there of skullcap causing liver toxicity, but it wasn't skullcap. It was Uh germanda. Uh So what we do is we provide the test. We say this is what it looks like, tastes like, smells like. This is how it grows. This is how you differentiate the species in the field. This is how you differentiate it macroscopically, microscopically, chemically, and here are the tests that you need to perform to make sure that you really have skullcap. And... um, that was in anticipation of FDA one day coming knocking on the industry's door saying, you guys can't use skullcap anymore because it causes hepatotoxicity. And you're like, what? And we're like, we can give them a, a dossier now that says, yeah, we understand that there are reports of skullcap causing hepatotoxicity, but here's the full story. Mm-hmm. And here are the testing methodology. So... You can leave Skullcap alone and just make sure the company selling Skullcap are performing appropriate tests. So it's preemptive in that way. Oh, okay. And 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 you, and you say yeah, these dossiers. Now I noticed on the on, on herbal-ahp.org, you actually uh, sell these, correct, in PDF form for people, and that supports yes. the organization. Right. Great. That's great. Um, that's good to know. So if people want to do further study and see what's going on out there, they can do that. And do you find that with um, with that intersection with the U.S. Pharmacopoeia and people in that world, that um, are is there a um, is there still a growing um, like warming up 
to uh, that realization of working with botanicals or is it still or is it or is it really like that you know that evil conspiracy people imagine going on behind the scenes where you know yada 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 that kind of thing you know what i mean yeah sure no um i think that the train has left the station on botanical medicines being integrated into the fabric of the of the society mm-hmm. um it's not you know all warm and fuzzy of course um but look at what we have um you know, 15 years ago, maybe 20, we had very little intersect with regulators. It was all—it was actually all confrontational, right? It wasn't pro- progressive or collaborative at all. Mm-hmm. Today, you have the Office of Dietary Supplements. You have the Office of Alternative and Compliment, uh, the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine, who's doing and funding research on herbal medicine materials. You have various medical groups uh, from Harvard, Beth Israel, Tufts, uh, Universities of Arizona, that all over the country you have uh, medical institutes and universities who have integrated medicine programs or botanical research centers that are being funded by the government. Mm. Uh, we didn't have that 15, 20 years ago. And you have many, much more, um, again, 20 years ago, all of the herb books were written by herbalists or by ghost writers, you know, just writers who wanted to sell a book, but they didn't really know a lot about herbs, but mm-hmm. thought it was a popular subject. And they were kind of alternative books. Well, now you have a plethora of, of academically um, generated books, you know, from pharmacists, medical doctors, naturopathic physicians, uh, cl- actual clinical practicing herb- clinically practicing herbalists. Uh, so you get a much higher level of quality of herbal information now than we did in the past. Um, mm-hmm. So it's out of, I think, that, like I said, the trains left the station. The market continues to grow. The integration of herbal products into people's lifestyles continues to grow. Uh, traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine continues to grow in popularity, naturopathic medicine every year. You know, the natural health movement is graduating, you know, a few hundred to a few thousand um, holistic health practitioners. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got integrated medicine programs now where doctors are actually going to learn about acupuncture, traditional Chinese medicine, and mind-body medicine. Mm-hmm. that we didn't have 20 years ago. So it's out the gate. It's, there's still going to be some growing pains. There'll still be little battles to fight. But I think, by and large, the war has been won, if, if I could put it in those terms. Um, we no longer mm-hmm. have to convince ourselves that there's um, validity for us existing. So, okay. So now what I want to do is then get into some questions from some people on Herb Mentor, because for those folks... They are, uh, for most of them anyway, as far as I know, <laughs> uh, they're fo- people like me who are your basic home herbalists. And they, they try to follow what's going on out there in the world in the news and see and, and think about that how, that, inter- how that relates to them. And sometimes the news that they hear um, can cause confusion or fear. And um, I thought a good place to start with some questions that we had in from folks about some of recent um, European regulations, especially in the UK. And um, now I could just go and ask questions that came in, but something tells me you probably have just to share your knowledge about that. Because if I just start out by saying, well, some some of the questions, for example, um, you know, legal standings of herbalists in the UK, what did they enjoy versus herbalists in the US? And 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 then it, do the changes that are happening there in the UK is that going to happen here and how does that affect the home herbalist that sort of thing can you just kind of go there or do you want me to go question by question no no that's no that's fine okay um, first off there's uh, in the UK there's a legal basis for herbalists to practice herbal mm-hmm. medicine uh, that was on the royal decree and it would take a royal decree to overturn that so today in the UK. It is legal for a person to actually practice herbal medicine. Um, and what I mean by that is I, I mean herbal medicine, meaning they can uh, 
you know, somebody can go to them, they can perform whatever diagnosis they perform, uh, they can prescribe whatever herbs they want to prescribe for whatever mm-hmm. condition, and they're not going to run the risk of practicing medicine without a license. There are some restrictions, so there's certain uh, things like in a certain number of infectious diseases that they shouldn't be treating, and they have a responsibility to, uh, responsibility to report um, when they see certain infectious diseases. Uh, they're not supposed to treat um, Bright's disease, any you know, that type of kidney disease. Um, they're not supposed to practice veterinary medicine. So there are mm. certain restrictions they have, but they don't need a license to practice herbal medicine. Um, that's very different than in this country. Um, there is no legal basis in any state uh, to actually practice herbal medicine uh, separate from having a naturopathic or an acupuncture or a medical license or a chiropractic license in some states. Um, there are some states that have had what are called Health Freedom Acts that allow for herbal healthcare consultants to practice, but not practice medicine. Under those healthcare bills, um, you know, you can say, I'm an herbalist, you come to me, I'm going to give you recommendations on your health, but I can't, I'm not a doctor, I can't treat disease, I can't diagnose disease, I can't tell you to get off of medications, and I'm going to recommend that you see your doctor if you have any questions. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference. You know, we can practice, quote-unquote, herbal health care. We can't practice herbal medicine legally. If we do, we engage in diagnosis and treatment or prevention of disease, then we are practicing medicine, and that violates state medical practices acts. So those, that's the, those are the two main differences between the U.K. and... United States with regards to the right to practice. What's happening in the UK is secondary to a broader piece of uh, legislative initiative throughout the entire European Union. Um, The only reason why it seems to be affecting the UK more is because they have a body of herbalists that can actually legally practice where in France and Germany and Belgium and all these other countries, you don't. They don't have the same rights for herbalists to practice herbal medicine. They don't even have strong herbalist organizations in many countries who can um, fight, you know, and stimulate, you know, what's going on in the UK, the opposition uh, to the implementation of this European Mm -hmm. Union directive. Um, The UK is unique in that it has a very strong body of herbal practitioners, so now they're up in arms now that they see what's coming down the pike. And it's interesting, it doesn't have anything to do with them practicing per se, it has to do with them being able to access herbal medicines. That's where the rub is. It's not with their ability to practice, it's their ability to access the herbal products that they need because that's what the European Directive was about. So, 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 who is behind, like in this in this EU directive? Um, like, is it industry, pharmaceutical industry behind it pushing that? Not initially, no. Um, it has nothing to do with that. Um, remember, the European Union came together what fifteen years ago, yeah, twenty yeah. or something, to have a, a an international currency called the euro instead right. of you know every country having different uh, currency. Well, they also had to look at every other aspect of of law and work to harmonize um, the laws across the European Union. So if you had certain laws on herbal products in Switzerland, well, that wasn't applicable to Germany, France, and all the other countries, and vice versa. So what they had to all do is come together and say, we need to harmonize our medicine laws. We need to harmonize our trade laws. We need to harmonize our food laws so that we can have free trade throughout the European Union, free and consistent trade throughout the European Union because you don't want to get arrested in France because you're selling a product that's illegal there because it was made in Germany. So they developed what was called a traditional medicines directive. And... Um, 
every country, interestingly, already had had what was called a traditional medicines model, hmm. which meant that herbal products could be allowed to state what they were good for. So valerian is used for sleeplessness, right? Right. Or echinacea is used for colds. And they had very specific languages. As, you know, um, skullcap has traditionally been used as fill-in-the-blanks. And every, most of the countries had this, but they regulated their products differently. And it was a great model um, until they tried to harmonize. It was a great model. So France was very open. Germany, interestingly, was very open. Uh, other countries were very restrictive on what types of claims would be allowed on products. And again, remember, as a juxtaposition against the American right. market, we can't say that stuff on our products. Right. Now we can say valerian promotes a healthy night's sleep. Echinacea supports a healthy immune system. Right, but we can't say it's for colds. We can't say valerians for sleeplessness because that turns the product into a drug. Got it. Okay. So the European Union directive was really only about harmonizing the laws of the manner in which herbal products are regulated throughout the European Union. The problem came in is because what I said, most of those countries do not have organized bodies of practicing herbalists, except for the UK, and the, and the UK people were asleep when the European Union directive was developed because they're kind of only tangentially in the EU, right? right, right. They're kind of their own little islands sitting off on the side, you know, whereas France, Belgium, and Germany, and Switzerland, and Austria, they're all sitting in the same neighborhood, right? Oh, so. Right, right. So the, the UK people were kind of off in their own world, not realizing it. Because, because like, the wait herbalists, a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, the herbalists were not organized, so they were not at the table in the conversations. So, so in order to come up with these standardizations, these other European countries, they, they're just deciding, well, just you know, to make it easy, nobody can access it? Is that what they're saying? Oh, no, not at all. No, they want to promote free access. No, they want to promote open access, but at the same time, you'll have, again, you'll have a strict country, like right now, Germany is a very strict country. You'll have a strict company like country like Germany saying the only indications that can be on these herbal products are those that have been supported by double-blind clinically, you know, placebo-controlled trials, mm. um, or they say only herbs um, that have an established use for 30 years in the European Union, or they, again, they come up with different parameters. So what's happening European is then countries then, if I get this right, who have more lax laws over the years are, are seeing, oh, wait a second, you guys are trying to make things strict like they were in other countries in my country. Yes, but what, they, what the European Directive did, and supposedly did, was kind of flatten that conversation. So those, the, the strict countries didn't get everything they wanted. The lax countries didn't get everything they wanted. But they came up with something that they all said they could live with. But right. the missing piece of the... Remember, that had to do with products. The missing piece of all of those puzzles was that there was no body of practicing herbalists represented in the conversations because most of those countries don't have the herbalists. So now that the UK herbalists, the professional herbalist community in the UK, realizes what the European Union directive means to them as practitioners, now they're involved in the conversation. Now they're up in arms. But in the initial, you know, phase of developing these directives, nobody once stood up and said, hey, how are we going to deal with traditional Chinese medicines here? Right. Wait a minute. How are we going to deal with traditional Ayurvedic medicines? Wait a minute. How are we going to deal with the fact that these herbalists practice legally in the UK, but we don't have any other practitioners in Italy or France or Belgium or wherever? 
And right? no, and all they along, weren't at the table. And and all along, no grassroots type herbalists like in the in Europe or the UK ever really saw what was going on, or just they're right. they're not a movement. No, there was there was complete um, complete ignorance of what was going on, um, and frankly, they didn't. You know, a lot of counter. Remember, a lot of counterculture people. They're like, oh, that doesn't apply to me. That doesn't apply to me. That doesn't apply to me. Mm-hmm. And so they don't get. You know, they don't get involved politically. They don't get involved in a regulatory, you know, scene. They don't, they don't pay attention to what's happening in international law and how it might impact them or their patients. And unless you are proactive in doing something like that, when this stuff comes down the pike and all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, what's going to happen in June when this directive comes into effect? Yeah. I didn't know that. I mean, I heard about this five years ago, or actually, you know, the European Directive goes back almost 10 years. Uh-huh. So this is not a new thing. All this time, the UK herbalists or the acupuncturists or the Ayurvedic people could have been opening dialogue with the European Union regulators at any time to say, you know what, we know about this European Union Directive. There are certain things you guys didn't really think about. Oh. that impact ourselves, our practice, and our patients in our communities. Um, we'd, like to, we'd like to have formal conversations with you. They didn't do that. Nobody did that in the European Union. Nobody did that in the UK. They just heard about the European Directive, yawned about it a little bit, and went back to doing whatever they do. So, so here's, here's then where it goes from here, because I'm sure you, more than anyone, have seen them all coming through. And and I showed you some of the questions ahead of time coming through. And where this leads people to start to think, and I've seen emails on it, is that we've got, oh, big conspiracy theories about what people are trying to do about herbal medicine and how this is then going to come to the U.S. and eventually lead to us not being able to grow or wildcraft certain herbs. Now, you know, to me, now that I hear what you're saying, all that and what people are saying seems pretty ridiculous. Is that true or is there is there no. any basis? No, there's always a little bit of truth in everything. So when something is, and there's always conversations that get mixed. Mm -hmm. So the thing about illegal to grow your own herbs and stuff like that, that has nothing to do with the European Union directive. That has to do with the food safety bill that was just passed in Congress a couple of weeks ago. Um, And the part of the food safety bill basically says that if you're going to buy or sell, if you're going to sell any commodity you grow, mm-hmm. you have to be registered. You have to be a registered food-producing facility because they are so paranoid about all this E. coli crap, mm-hmm. you know, with Burger King and spinach from Watsonville Farms and, you know, contaminations that you hear about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, there's, and, and that's all, of course, um, also uh, driven by this Fear, you know, homeland security, you know, they can attack our food supply thing, you know, so we have to make sure that all our food suppliers are registered, certified, or whatever I'd, you know. And so that's where that fear comes mm-hmm. from. Um, it doesn't prevent people from growing what they want. It just puts burdens on people that want to sell, like mm-hmm. at a farmer's market, whether it's a tincture product or whether it's an apple, right? It doesn't matter. That's where that conversation comes in, and people mix up those conversations. Um, the reality on the international spillover, i.e., the the ability, the potential for international law to come knocking on North American soil, <clears throat> that's always a potential because just as we had NAFTA, just as we had GATT, just as we are part of the um, you know, Codex Elementarius, and we have been for 40 years, um, there's always the chance for the U.S. to somebody to develop a, a trade agreement, a treaty that says, yes, we will harmonize with your laws. Right? That's not going to happen in the short run. Um, that could happen in the long run. It won't happen in the short run. Um, Right now, there's nothing in the European Union Directive or what's happening in the UK that can possibly affect 
the U.S. with regards to dietary supplements because the dietary supplement category protects access to all of these things that were on the market when the act was signed. And that would have to be overturned. And if, if Congress would try to overturn that, and actually there are Democrats that would love to see that overturned, um, this country would freak out again and kick their butts like we did the last time. Um, we always win those battles. The place we'll lose is if, again, if the Democrat, if, if, if we don't keep our house in order and there are more people that are alleged to die of ephedra or there, keep, uh, there continues to be reports of supplements being spiked by conventional drugs in like the herbal Viagra pills mm-hmm. um, or people dying from taking weight loss herbal supplements or people companies making outrageous cancer claims mm-hmm. you know on their astragalus mm-hmm. or something if we don't clean up our act as an industry as a profession these are the things that are going to work to whittle away and erode our rights to these products. That's the basis of what we try to do with the American Herbal Pharmacopeia is to say, this is what we know, this is how much you should take, this is how you tell you got the right stuff, this is how you tell if it's good quality, this is how you tell if it's pure, this is the test you can perform whether you're an herbalist collecting it in the field, a farmer growing it in your backyard, somebody selling it at at an herbal you know, bazaar or farmer's market, or if you're Pfizer developing an herbal drug, this is what we know about this herb. This is how you do it. This is how you ensure the identity, purity, quality, and potency of this. And this is the dosage, contraindications. This is what it does in pregnant women. This is what it does with regards to drug interactions. Here is everything you need to know to use and make this medicine safely. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have to promote throughout our whole community. And it doesn't matter whether you're a traditional herbalist picking it at home. If you're picking it out in the field, you better know that you're picking the right stuff. Mm-hmm. You better know that you're not picking it um, you know, on a, on, the, on, a, on a lead smeltering uh, mine you know, where you had all these tailings 150 years ago. Um, because the plants are going to be sucking up too much lead or too much cadmium or arsenic or something like that. You better know that you should wash your hands before picking or while you're processing after Mm. you went to the bathroom, right? There are some basic things you have to do in order to make a safe and effective medicine that you are willing to give to a patient. And that's what happens in a lot of third world countries. They don't have the same hygienic practices or they are harvesting herbs uh, right next to roads or they're harvesting herbs in industrial areas that used to be mining areas. And unless you have a way to know the quality of your material, you don't know what you're doing. And then as as a practitioner, what we also have to be doing is increasing our own clinical skills so that we don't hurt anybody because that's what's going to get FDA or somebody knocking on our door faster than anything else. It's going to be first, it's going to be us hurting somebody, and the second is telling somebody, oh, yeah, we can cure your cancer. Don't take your chemotherapy drugs. Don't take your cardiovascular medicine. Throw your statins out. Hmm. So you're saying that... Right. You're saying that... Um that pretty much like things will continue to go as they are in the U.S. at in the moment, but it really always depends on the responsibility of those in the industry. You know, all it takes then is, um, you know, like I said, one one breakout of something or one you know or or irresponsible claims or things like that for the FDA to go to make changes. So uh, absolutely. So that's really, I guess, a free market type of. 
way of doing it is just more of a self-regulation. And, and yeah, and that's what I'm, I'm a very strong proponent of self-regulation, of self-policing mm-hmm. our own communities. And, mm-hmm. and, I'm, and I'm not talking about from a, a draconian perspective. I'm talking mm-hmm. about from an education perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if we're teaching somebody how to identify herbs in the field, mm-hmm. then that lessens the risk of skullcap getting mixed up with germander and somebody getting a toxic liver. Right. If we um, if we know that um, there's a chance that comfrey can cause veno-occlusive disease in the developing fetus of a pregnant woman who might be using it for an upset stomach, then it's good for us to tell a patient that mm-hmm. so that a baby's not born with veno-occlusive disease um, because of comfrey, for example, uh, which I don't believe that it causes, but there's evidence to suggest that it can do that. So why don't you choose something else? You can choose any number of other digestive-supporting herbs that don't have the compounds that potentially cause liver toxicity. So this is where we have to you know, be open to challenging our own paradigms and looking at the world of botanical information that's out there, not just what we believe from some teacher or something we read, or something we have experienced even ourselves. Right. We have to look at the broad body of information that and experience that exists in the world. So, so really, I mean, it's a pretty volatile thing. And if people are listening to this, they're probably people who are learning how to harvest their own herbs and make their own remedies, which are always safe to do. You know, I mean, you, people can. I mean, sorry, let me take that back. I mean, that 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 uh, <laughs> that you know, they can always do. Um, but then people also get concerned because people also purchase herbs and raw herb material. And I think a lot of this comes down and say, yeah, you know, I can go and pick my own nettles, but my all, you know, and, and for my herbal infusions that I'm going to make. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, oh my gosh, if I need more nettle, am I going to be able to buy it in the U S and, um, and I guess the answer is we'll see. No, no. The answer is a definite yes. Oh, okay. There's nothing that's going to ever, that's going to prevent us from buying nettles unless, for some reason, there's some body of evidence that comes out that says right. nettles is going to cause your right. big toe to fall off. Right, right, right. You know, or that it's giving rise to some kind of a microbial outbreak. Right. Um, and then they might not take it off the market, but what they would do is they would require for it to be sterilized, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Irradiated, ethylene oxide, uh, steam sterilization. You know, they recommend, just like they do with spinach mm-hmm. and strawberries, right? Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons why strawberries are irradiated. And, one, and they started to talk about irradiation of spinach in order to kill E. coli. So they don't necessarily take it off the market. They just impose restrictions so that somebody else doesn't get sick. Right. But the thing that stinks about it is that they'll do this based on single events. Right. You know what? Stuff happens, you know, and we can't legislate and regulate just because something might happen, right? If if you always had E. coli outbreaks in spinach, then you, throughout the world or throughout the country, then you have to say, well, there's something wrong with our harvesting and growing and fertilization practices, and change that, mm-hmm. right? Don't regulate spinach out of existence. Clean up the process mm-hmm. so that we're not, you know, if, if one event happens every once in a while, big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, and unfortunately, yes, yeah, some people will die from that, so it's a big deal for them. But from a broad perspective, if it only happens, you know, rarely, and you use the event to improve your, your handling processes, you don't have to legislate stuff out of existence. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I, I see. I guess so. So is there, you know, then all in all, when you hear these emails and things going around about like, you know, oh, the codex, this or that, or the big pharma and all this, then it's really not as much of that as those kinds of rumors and whatnot are saying out there. No, those are being generated predominantly by a few people who, some of whom, um, go in and attend these meetings and some who don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 
and you'll have, I've had people that have been at the meeting, right? Mm -hmm. And the more flamboyant and conspiratorial of the people that were there, they come back saying the sky is falling, and the other ones come back saying, I didn't hear any of that, that this guy is saying. I don't know where he's projecting, where he's getting that information. Yes, this one guy said that, but anybody has a right to their own opinion. It doesn't mean that's policy. And see what I mean? At the end of the day, it's a process of figuring out how do we represent everybody's opinion around the table. And you'll have some opinions that say, we want these regulated as drugs, period, no, you know, no questions asked, period, end of story. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that that carries that at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. That's one person's opinion. Okay, okay, okay. This is, that's, as, as far as, you know, with all the regulation and, in you know, relation to Europe and what people in those fears and stuff, that's very comprehensive. I appreciate that clarity. Um, something that, that comes up for people um, next is that, um, you know, and, and, and folks listen and submitted questions. I'm kind of like looking through them and I'm just kind of, you know, fusing them together into the g- general ideas because of the amount of time that we have today. Um, but um, so I may not ask it directly, but, you know, so anyway, um, you know, what what comes up for people then when they hear these and they and you said like they cross lines, you know, here, here, there's this European EU thing versus the Food Safety Act. And then there's the good manufacturing uh, practices, practices right. and, and everything. And 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 you could speak to that. But in what through the lens of not necessarily uh, like uh, maybe. Well, if you want to, through like a, someone who's more of a herbal consultant or quote, you know, kind of practitioner. But you know, most folks here, like, I'm, I'm getting questions like, um, you know, f- everything from people wondering how, if it's what's okay for them to share in words online and giving herbal advice from a forum or social networking site. Like people, I've been emailing saying, "Is it okay? Is it legal for me to give?" advice to uh, a friend on Facebook about a cold, you know, or a hurt knee, you know, you get you get that of people asking questions like that and being confused because they might want to have a little herbal advice column on their blog or something like that, you know, um, do they so, so so they wonder about the, you know, disclaimers and can I do that? Let's, let's start with that. And then I'll move to more of a, some questions with products that people have. Yeah, in the first case, you have protection on the freedom of speech, freedom of press, constitutional mm-hmm. amendment protection. Okay, so with the with the pure and unadulterated and non-commercial conveyance of information, mm-hmm. um, you can do that. Mm-hmm. Now, there also there are also lines that court precedence has drawn in the sand. Right. right? So, for example, if you are a friend, if you are an herbalist and you're giving your friend advice on colds, then that's, there's absolutely no problem with that whatsoever. Now, it might be a little different if you just charge that friend um, a uh, $250 or $125 consultation fee um, because now they've engaged in a business practice of practicing medicine. Um, it becomes further complicated if you've then said, let me send you or why don't you go ahead and Go to my website and purchase my homemade bottle of echinacea tincture for eight ninety five because now you have made a claim on the product that it's going to treat you. You've one established that you're going to treat this person for disease. You're going to charge them for that information, and you're going to make them buy a product that you said is going to treat their disease. So then you just made a drug claim. So you see where the, the lines are crossed. Mm-hmm. And also, there also might be a, a place where you would run awry if you were a person um, developing like an anti-cancer blog. And you were saying, listen, everybody that's listening to me, like Rush Limbaugh, don't take your chemotherapy. They're, they kill you. Don't take a radiation. They're going to fry your immune cells. And you need your immune cells to fight the cancer. Take astragalus, take reishi mushroom, take lagustrum, take echinacea, take whatever the herbs that I'm saying you should take, 
and throw away all your conventional drugs. Somebody's going to come after you from practicing medicine without a license and really giving bad advice. Then that's complicated more if you say, look at all my immune-supported products that are great once you throw away all your conventional drugs. Mm. Okay? Mm -hmm. So lines, there are different lines in the sand. Um, but for the most part, individual expressions, friend to friend, non-business to non-business, are protected under freedom of speech, freedom of press. You can write anything you want in a book. You can write anything you want in an article. Um, and uh, again, is, remember this. Freedom of, of speech protects truthful speech, right? Right. The stereotypical thing, you can't run into the movie theater and yell fire if there's no fire. So similarly, you can't be going out there proclaiming, I got the cancer cure, if it's not true. Freedom of speech does not protect lies, exaggerations, or anything like that. Wow. So what you're saying has to be truthful, not misleading. Okay. Okay. And then how do people who are like, who get trained in various herbal, you know, skills and then want to be an herbal consultant, whether either in person or over online or something, how do they, how do they do that legally? You I don't. Want... As a, well, as a consultant, you can. As a, to, to do, practice herbal medicine, you can't unless you're a licensed naturopath, acupuncturist, mm -hmm. chiropractor, or mm -hmm. medical doctor. Mm -hmm. So you can be an herbal consultant. Anybody can consult. I can be an automotive consultant. I can mm -hmm. be an aerospace consultant. I can be any a janitorial consultant. But you can't Nothing. prescribe or sell. You can just recommend. Exactly. No, no. no. If you're recommending, if you're charging somebody mm -hmm. and you're recommending something for the treatment or prevention of disease, then you're actively engaged in the practice of medicine. You switch it around. You don't have to be an herbal medicine practitioner, but an herbal consultant, an herbal healthcare consultant, and say, no, I can't treat your high blood pressure, but I can help you to promote a higher level of cardiovascular health. Got it. You see the difference? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. You're still going to give Hawthorne. Right, You're still right. going to give vitamin E and magnesium and CoQ10 and L-carnitine. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. but it's for cardiovascular health, not for essential hypertension. Mm -hmm. So that's how you can do it. Act as a health, herbal healthcare consultant legally, but it doesn't allow you to diagnose. Okay, well, how do you know you have essential hypertension? And then you pull out the stethoscope. Well, you're now diagnosing. You just engage in the practice of disease. What if well, you said about like charging and stuff like that? What if someone comes up to me and says, "John, I've got, you know, this situation, and you know, what should I do to, you know, just like a friend or something?" And then, uh, like you said, freedom of speech and all, and you do truthful this and that. But still, um, if they're asking me advice and I'm telling them something, and what if it goes wrong? And then they turn around with, you know, can someone sue yes, somebody? Yes, absolutely. You can sue. In this country, we can sue anybody for anything. Yeah. It doesn't have to have any merits whatsoever. We can sue anybody for anything. And that's where, that's where the rubber meets the road, is that, yeah, you have the freedom to tell them whatever you want, and they have the freedom to say, hey, I took that stuff, and it caused me to have runs the runs for three days, and that put my heart into cardiac arrhythmia. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. What kind of advice are you giving me, John? You know, and... How many other people are you hurting every day? Mm -hmm. I'm going to put an end to this, you, you know, and then they sue you. And again, that's where I mean about us being as skilled as we possibly can mm -hmm. in knowing what our limitations are, um, knowing the both our clinical limitations as well as our legal limitations uh, and ethical limitations. If there's something that we don't know, oh, you really need to go see this acupuncturist or this naturopath or this integrated medical doctor or this whatever because I don't know that. And to be able to say, no, you know what, I, I, I don't know enough about that specific thing to give you some sound advice from my experience. I could study it up for it and if you want me to take a look at it and give you some basic recommendations tomorrow, I will. 
Mm-hmm. And the, yeah. that's, mm-hmm. that's the dance. It's a dance that we have to play if, right, if right, we want right. to do it legally. And even if you're not charging, you brought up the issue of, of charging and not charging. Actually, um, practicing medicine without a license thing doesn't have a clause that says you have to charge for it. Again, it goes back to somebody says, hey, you guys, I got the cancer cure to beat all cancer cures. Mm-hmm. Throw your stuff out. Throw your medications out. Take my stuff. Even if they didn't charge you for that advice, they're still practicing medicine without a license. And the the medical people are going to come after you and say, okay, you're making all these claims. First, we think you're practicing medicine without a license. Second, we don't believe you have any evidence whatsoever to support the claims you're making. And at the end of the day, like the one guy, the last guy that got whacked on doing something like this, he's in jail for 25 years because... He hired an actor to act as a doctor <laughs> to tell people that this thing is going to be good for their diabetes. Well, he's spending 25 years in jail and had to pay $3 million. Jeez. Right? So, yeah. no, he was a promoter, right? He's right. not you and me who do this as a, a living, a mission, a mission in life, right? right? This is our philosophical, the basis of our existence is believing in natural medicine. This guy was out to make a buck. He's in jail for 25 years, but the principle is still the same. Right, right. He was brought to task. He didn't have the information to back up the claims that he was making, mm-hmm. and he's paying the price. Right, 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 right. Well, that's great. So I think that for in that in that area, it really covers anyone from just someone who wants to help a friend all the way to somebody who's thinking about maybe consulting and what that's about. And very few people get very few people get um, whacked for this. There have been a few, but very few people, uh, healthcare practitioners, mm. um, get sued or get any kind of legal action taken against them unless it's because a doctor turns them in because they're jealous or professional mm. competition and stuff like that. That's, <laughs> that's happened. Why, that's why on learning herbs, the only things I ever put out or really focus on are always just... Uh, you know, promotes health, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, is, is a healthy thing to take or use and general first aid, <laughs> you know, just, yeah. just, just simple, simple. I don't get into the, how to cure chronic stuff. Leave that to the, to the experts. Um, so, um, so I guess if there's one other area to, uh, look at, um, you know, with the time that we have here, is is uh, for those people like uh, oh let's say say that I want to go in um, you know I I get it because making things like salves and creams and tinctures and oils and tea blends and all is such a wonderful way you know for a, a growing and an herbalist and wanting to learn and all to to uh, to learn about what they want to do because they might have a vision or an idea of, oh, sharing with the community or selling at a farmer's market or selling to their friends, selling at a local store or trading or all these kinds of things because it's a great way to learn, you know, learn about herbs and all through just making products. And then often what happens is people make these things and realize that they're ending up with so much in their kitchen, they might as well, you know, make some labels and put them on and share with friends or sell them or go to the local farmer's market or something. And so... Um, in all these things we've been talking about, what like things should people keep in mind, uh, whether it be the good the GMPs or the Food Safety Act, and how that all works? It's a tricky, it's a tricky thing because first off, when you're talking about um, bulk herbs, okay, now they're they're classified as foods, uh, not as dietary supplements. Hmm. So that's one set of regulations that has to do with. Uh, producing things in a food grade food grade kitchen and having a an address on your label that this was prepared in food grade kitchen um, there was a, a tincture manufacturer who was had to throw away literally throw away dump right in front of the USDA's inspector's face about twelve hundred dollars worth of tinctures that weren't made in a food you know food uh, grade facility mm-hmm. uh, when they made tinctures um, the bulkers. Uh, they're actually exempt from most GMPs because you could sell lavender as a potpourri. It's not going to be ingested. It's not going to be made into a dietary supplement. There's no claim that's going to be made on it, like structure and function claim. So that's almost completely exempt. So you could sell the peppermint you grew, and then it's up to whoever bought it as to what they want to do with it. 
But as far as you're concerned, you're just selling it because it smells good or it looks mm-hmm. good or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, when you start making tinctures or capsules or tablets or any kind of pills or syrups that are going to be ingested, um, now you're making either a tea blend, which is, falls on the food, or tinctures, pills, capsules, and tablets or syrups. Now you're making a dietary supplement, and so the different laws apply all the way from GMPs to food safety to whatever. Um, when you're talking about salves and oils, well, those aren't going to be internally ingested, so they're not dietary supplements and they're not foods, so they can either be cosmetics or drugs. If you have a claim that says this salve is good for cuts, bruises, burns, this and that, you just made it a drug product. If you have... Um, an oil that says put this under your tongue, no, uh, put this under your nose for colds and flus. You just made a drug product, and then drug GMP requirements come in. There are some exemptions with regards to small businesses. If you sell, you know, less than X amount of a specific product, then you're exempt from, for example, dietary supplement GMPs. The most important thing is for a people to be a people to be aware of exactly the class of product they're making and then to go on to the FDA or the FTC or whatever websites and see what laws pertain and regulations pertain to the class of products that they're making. See if they fit into any of the exemption uh, categories Um, and be very clear that if they choose not to follow those laws, they do run the risk of eventually being, you know, if, if they're selling at a farmer's market, like I said, USDA inspectors go through farmer's markets all the time, and that's how this tincture maker got caught, you know, selling her stuff. And they warned her first. They said, oh, you need an address. Um, you have to destroy this. And she convinced them, okay, I'll get an address. Can I just keep it and affix it to the labels? And they said, oh, yeah, sure, we'll let you do that. Well, then they came back the next month. She hadn't fixed it, and they made her destroy it. So they gave her a chance. Right. And she chose not to comply, so she had to dump her product. So hmm. we just have to be aware of what we're making, what laws are appropriate or uh, that we're supposed to be following, and then choose to follow them consciously or choose to not follow them consciously but do it consciously. It, it's, so this uh, that, that's a pretty big, big, uh, big change because... It wasn't that long ago where you could just probably go to the farmer's market with your homemade tinctures and things and 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 uh, and it was real easy to do. But now it seems like we are involving commercial kitchens. We have to follow these. It was always the same. The law was always the same with regards to food products. They were still – they just weren't enforcing it because there weren't as many people that were reporting getting sick Mm-hmm. or there wasn't as much legislative attention paid to this category before. Mm-hmm. But as the category grows, mm-hmm. there's more attention by regulators. There are more atten- there's more attention by um, congressional people, like the whole Ephedra thing. You know, a guy in New York had a constituent whose daughter died while playing soccer, and they blamed it on Ephedra. Mm-hmm. So then that guy goes to Congress and says, hey, guys, we've got to do something here. We've got a problem. And then you got Richard Durbin in Illinois saying, yeah, I don't like this shit either. So let's, excuse me, like, I don't like this stuff either. So we do have to do something about it. And then before you know it, the Democrats are on a tier to regulate just like they do seatbelts and, you know, helmets for motorcycles. And, you know, they're the, they're the consumer protectionists of the Congress. Right, right. That's the good and the bad of them. They right. want to protect us from everything, but but herbs are too amorphous, and remedies are too amorphous, and then they not just... when a girl not when a girl dies on a soccer sixteen year old girl dies on the soccer field to them they there is nothing um, exactly there is nothing amorphous about that. They have to do something about that. But in but I mean their I mind. mean they lump it everything together from a hand cream to a ephedra pill. Absolutely, they have to. I mean, yeah. that's that's the government, right? You can't, mm. you're not right. supposed to arbitrarily regulate one aspect of something and leave everybody else alone. That's unfair. It causes unfair business practices. So they have to say, we have to regulate this whole category of goods. Mm-hmm. 
There's, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, speaking of hand cream, there's hand cream salves, body products. They fall under uh, I mean, cosmetics. Do, and, and do they have to be done in a commercial kitchen too? Uh, I don't know cosmetic laws, yeah, so okay. I do. There are laws for mm-hmm. cosmetics, and but you got they, people need to look that up on FDA, FTC, that kind of site. Exactly, FTC has to do more with claims, right. and FDA has to do with more more with manufacturing and labeling of products. Because because the FTC that they're the. the, the Claims over all those crazy like a cyberi like ads that you saw and everything. Right. I mean that even affected like like um, internet sites of all niches and genres because it was those people that suddenly caused the FTC to make people completely change the way things like testimonials and all were done in all markets. So it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. and that's so, the problem. As soon as people start pushing the envelope, yeah, then they have to push back and say. Hey, you guys, you're going a little bit too far for our comfort mm-hmm. or for what you have evidence for. Mm-hmm. And so we need to challenge you, and they're going to go after the AIDS and the, and the cancer and the diabetes cures first, mm-hmm. right? The outrageous claims they're going to go after first. Mm-hmm. And, but they're, they're basically, they have to take a stance that, you know, for a long time, this has been a sleepy little community. But geez, now it's spilling over into everything, and you got Dean Adell, and you got you know Doctor Oz, and you got Oprah, and you got all these people now. Well, she's she's the one that put a Sai on the map, right? It was right. Oprah, <laughs> and um, Harold Bloomfield put St. John's Wood on the map in 1998. So then the Fed say it's no longer a sleepy little community. Now we get this, you know, these heavy metals and Ayurvedic products coming from India, and we have these spiked products from China being sold as herbal Viagra, but they have real Viagra in it, you know? Mm -hmm. Or we have these, you know, codeine herbal cough syrups from China. Now we have to do something about it because it's no longer a sleepy little community. It's in our face now. So, so, you know, you're finish it to wrap it up Roy um you know you're a unique individual in that you've been you're in this world and you can see and empathize and understand the clarity of where all this is coming from for people because people will, will might get into this and they're going like, oh man these rules and regulation the FDA blah 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 but at the same time you know you're also you know a trained herbalist who's been doing this a long time like you're a, you're you're an earthy you, you you're an earthy uh, crunchy herbalist in origin right yes <laughs> and absolutely. and and at the same time you're you you've got your 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 foot dipped in both you know in in, in both worlds um and so what is your you know you know overall feeling and take about these kinds of rules and regulations being that you can empathize with pretty much everyone who who is uh, involved here um that's where i'm a big advocate of self regulation self education self policing meaning mm-hmm. we police ourselves meaning you john police yourself of what you're doing and how you're doing it and do it to the best of your ability. It doesn't mean I police you or mm-hmm. FDA, and don't wait for FDA to police you, but you police yourself and that we encourage this self-regulating, and I really mean self-regulating and self-policing and ask our own questions. How do I know what species of echinacea I really have? I bought it from this company. How did they know? What mm-hmm. test did they perform that gives me confidence that I really have skullcap and not germanda? How do I really know? And if we can ask ourselves those questions and answer them with confidence to ourselves, then we're doing the best we possibly can. Mm. My job is to provide the information that people can refer to that they say, well, let me go see what the American Herbal Pharmacopeia says. Let me go see what the American Herbal Products Association says. Let me go see what the European or the U.S. Pharmacopeia says about what this thing should look like, taste like, and smell like. And Oh, let me, let me bone up a little bit on my botanical ID to make sure I can get the species and not generically just get to nettles. Mm-hmm. Right? Right, right, right. Wow. And and so Roy, um, once again, um, to to do that, and you just mentioned the American Herbal Pharmacopoeia, and to check out what 
uh, dossiers and monographs that you have all you know prepared, people can access that information at herbal-ahp.org. And um, and I guess that's the best URL, like you said, to, for people to check all that out. And, yeah, there's, uh, there's tremendous numbers of resources online now. And, and, and can I ask you, is there places where uh, people can see you speak or teach? Or are you on this uh, faculty uh, with any schools people would know about if they want to, you know, kind of connect with you personally? Or um, it's, it's hit or miss. You know, I go to Wake Forest. <laughs> I go to Thai Sophia. I go to Bastyr. I um, was faculty or visiting faculty down at uh, USC School of Pharmacy. So different, you know, it depends on the year. Yeah, it depends on the year. Well, Roy, it's been a an honor and a pleasure and it's been so informative i, I really love to have you back sometime because you know we i think i only hit about 10 percent of the questions yeah i know <laughs> but it was so awesome but 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 in but it generally though i feel really complete like that was really great that I, so it was awesome so oh, thanks, thanks for so the opportunity much. yeah okay well we'll we'll see you again and maybe we'll uh we'll get to meet at a conference sometime in the future all right john thank you thank you Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com is a production of LearningHerbs.com. Visit LearningHerbs.com for free herbal lessons, including Herb Mentor News, Home Remedy Secrets, and Supermarket Herbalism. You'll also find the Herbal Medicine Making Kit and our board game Wildcraft. Herb Mentor Radio. Copyright LearningHerbs.com. All rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening.